that puts everybody into this behavior modification regime that even if it doesn't do what it's supposed to, it has all these side effects. It makes everybody a bit more vain and crazy and stupid and, and uh, contentious and paranoid. That does happen. It's really good at that. And because of that, it be, it becomes this giant invitation to the worst actors in the world to try to go in and sabotage other people's societies. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissam. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is somebody we've been trying to get onto the show literally since the day we started. He's an American computer scientist, visual artist, computer philosophy writer, technologist, futurist and composer of contemporary classical music as well. He's considered one of the founders of the field of virtual reality. Jaron Lanier, welcome to Trigonometry. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. Listen, man, um, before we get into of what we hope is going to be a brilliant and fascinating conversation, uh, tell everybody a little bit about your story. Who are you? How are you where you are? What has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Oh, gosh, you know, I, I find that to be a confusing question. I can never... <laughs> I, I, uh, um, well, let's see. Um, I'm known for a few different things and to different communities of people. Some people only know me one way or the other. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I uh, approximately started virtual reality. Uh, I came up with the term and I had the first startup and pioneered a lot of the apps and devices and whatnot a long time ago in the 80s when I was a kid in my wasted youth. And then uh, <laughs> uh, I, I write books that are critical about technology. I'm very concerned that we have a responsibility as computer scientists to think about what we're doing to the world and when it's not working, we have to be honest about it. And so I've written a bunch of books. Um, the best known one might be the 10 arguments uh, for deleting your social media accounts now, right now. Um, but uh, another one is called You're Not a Gadget. And I'm very skeptical of the idea of artificial intelligence. I'm very skeptical of the business models for social media and other things mm. that involve. Um, I'm very concerned about them. And then uh, yet another thing is, uh, as an actual computer scientist, I do all kinds of things. We don't have to get into that because it'll put you to sleep, but it's actually extremely important and profound. And then um, uh, I do other stuff too, but I think that's enough to get sure. going. Hmm. Yeah. Sure. Well, you've covered three things there that Francis and I are really keen to talk to you about, which is mm -hmm. AI, virtual reality, and of course, social media. I think we best start with social media because I, I feel mm -hmm. like, of all the different stories we've covered on the show, the different guests we've talked to, the polarization, the tone of our public discourse, the behavior of children in terms of their self-image and their body image, the I mean, any issue that is affecting modern society, really, there is a role that social media has played. And, and by the way, you know, Francis and I are both quote-unquote content creators I love using Twitter, for example, to talk to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people on a daily basis. I think it's an incredible piece of technology, but we're also paying a heavy, heavy price for some of these benefits. Talk to us about your broad take on, on social media. You talk about the business model and the problems with that. 
What are some of the, the impacts that we are seeing in the world, in your opinion, and where are they coming from? Mm, well, okay. The first thing I want to say is that in the biggest picture, something similar to social media as we know it would be great. Like I, I worked really hard to help get the internet to happen, uh, which is a story we can talk about if you want what my role was. But I still believe in the idea of a more connected world. I still believe in the idea of people being able to have reach in new ways. I, mm. All of that's great. The problem that came up is the business model, which had a perverse effect of promoting the worst sides of human nature. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's a business model problem more than a technology problem. And I really want people to remember that because a lot of times somebody will come up to me and say, well, there's this or that about whatever social media platforms they like that I love. And how can you say that I should quit it and that it's all horrible? And I'll say, you know, I never told you to quit. I gave you arguments. I want you to think. I want you to be responsible for your choices. But the good stuff is authentic. Like it would be absurd to argue that the authentic that that the good stuff is inauthentic because that's ridiculous. I mean, it's plain in front of our faces that they're good things. Um, my personal favorite one remains an oldie but goodie, which is people with unusual diseases can find each other and share notes, and that mm -hmm. used to be impossible. That to me is a great concrete example of something that the technology has brought into the world that otherwise would not be in the world that has kept people alive. I love that. All right. So, I mean, it should be obvious. However, what <laughs> happened was, for a lot of really stupid reasons, the early Internet companies ended up with this bizarre business model. And the business model is uh, you pretend to be socialist in the user's experience, but the way you're capitalist is fake capitalist, too. You end up with the worst of both worlds instead of the best of both worlds. So um, you're fake socialist in the sense that you say, oh, sharing is great to share your information and we'll give you free stuff. But the problem is there has to be a customer somewhere because it's still a world driven by business. And so the customers who come in think that what they're buying is mind control. They think that what they're buying is so much access to user data mm. and so much access to giant algorithms that can predict user behavior that they can just pour money into uh, Alphabet or Meta, Google or Facebook, and out will come massive behavior modification that will throw elections or get people to buy products or whatever it is, um, or, or commit to a religion, all kinds of crazy stuff, mm. or just cynically... Um, bring about a, 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 a quicker end to civilization or something, whatever the person's into. The thing is, a lot of that stuff doesn't even work. I, I've been around the meetings where the big companies sell the biggest clients to pour money into this. And honestly, I don't think you get a lot of mind control. I do think you get two things, though. I think you get uh, just a few big companies holding the ability to blackmail everybody by controlling access of everybody to everybody. So in other words, it's just the opposite. What the internet was supposed to be is connecting everyone. And instead we have universal blackmail of be forcing people to behave in certain ways to get connected, which is the opposite of what was supposed to happen. So that's stupid. But then the, <laughs> the other thing is that even if the mind control to get somebody to buy a particular soap is pretty sketchy, and I think a lot of times the data to support it is sketchy, 
what it does do is it puts everybody into this behavior modification regime that even if it doesn't do what it's supposed to, it has all these side effects. It makes everybody a bit more vain and crazy and stupid and, and uh, contentious and paranoid. That does happen. It's really good at that. And because of that, it be, it becomes this giant invitation to the worst actors in the world to try to go in and sabotage other people's societies. So you have uh, the lovely Mr. Putin uh, having these <laughs> basements in St. Petersburg uh, create fake Black activists to try to make uh, the Black political movements in the U.S. more radical in order to destabilize American society and make mm-hmm. it kind of nutty. That's documented. I'm just using that example because it's well documented. There's many, many others that mm. are real as well. And so <laughs> um, you overall have this thing that darkens human prospects. It makes everybody, like I say, just a little like a lesser version of themselves, a little more vain, a little more mature, a little more paranoid, a little more ornery and irritable. Mm. And all of that is in service of a business model that doesn't really deliver a lot of real value, but just creates artificial impediments to what would otherwise happen, in my opinion. So I think it's a, a massive, massive screw up. And it happened, you know, I was around Google when it was very, very small before mm-hmm. Facebook existed. I sold them a company. I used to know Sergey and Larry. They were so cute, so full of energy, so optimistic. And uh, the thing is that the surrounding social circumstance was incredibly adamant about two different needs that were totally in contradiction with one another. On the one hand, there was this leftist feeling because it's the Bay Area in California and everybody's supposed to share. The Internet is finally a chance to get rid of the evils of capitalism. But on the other hand, we love our business hacker heroes. We love our entrepreneurs. We, we love our Steve Jobs, you know? And so you're supposed to be this great business person, but you're supposed to hate business. <laughs> you know, like, how do you get those things to work? Mm. And the way to do it is by being fake, where you create fake socialism as an experience mm. and fake capitalism on the back end. Mm. You don't get, like, whatever you believe about either of them, <laughs> you know these this is the worst of both of them it's it's like the worst possible solution but in a way it's the only one the social pressures of the time would allow to happen jaron can you dig in for us into that particular thing a little bit more what is the i understand that me as a twitter user i'm not the customer it's the advertiser that's the customer mm-hmm. but beyond that how how is the business model making us different and when you talk about fake socialism and fake capitalism, dig in for, into that a little bit more for us. Yeah, sure. So um, there's a, we have to go a little bit into the science behind behavior modification. So mm. this backwise, it goes to the 19th century with Ivan Pavlov, yet another Russian. I see you have a mock Russian poster behind well, you. Well, I'm from Russia originally, so that's my heritage. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I'm from Venezuela, so I've, I've seen socialism done properly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, so um, we're all extremely well informed here. Yeah. So, <laughs> Pavlov, talk to us about Pavlov and his, and his beautiful Pavlov dogs. Was one of the early behaviorists. And so mm. these are people who said, we're going to do a methodical, mathematical, scientific approach to understanding how training works. So, of course, people have been training animals and, for that matter, other people mm-hmm. since ancient times. 
There's nothing new about that. But this was saying, okay, we're in the scientific age. We're going to do it methodically. And so um, uh, Pavlov started to experiment with like, you're going to put a creature in a cage and control exactly what stimuli are available and exactly what outcomes are available. So you can really get focused information about what works and what doesn't work to understand uh, behaviorism. In the 20th century, probably the most famous uh, heir to Pavlov was B.F. Skinner. Mm -hmm. He was doing the same thing. In Skinner's case, mostly with uh, pigeons and rats, uh, you put them in a cage. Um, there are a few very interesting things that came out of this methodical approach to training. One thing is that it can get out of control. So if you put, mm -hmm. if you put an animal in a cage and you say, if you hit this button, you'll get a treat. If you hit this other button, you'll get an electric shock, let's say. Um, they'll just sit there hitting the treat button. What happens is it changes the nature of an organism or a creature from one that has multi-level behaviors that can respond to different circumstances and can learn to one that's very simple, just stuck on a little loop. Okay, that's a very important thing to observe. All right, that's one thing. Um, another thing that's extremely interesting is that if you want to deeply embed a behavioral pattern in, in, in the creature, instead of just having perfect feedback, where when you hit the button, you immediately get the candy every time, you add a bit of randomness, or it might take a while longer. Mm. And this bit of randomness, what it, it does is, is it absorbs the brain's ability to adapt and, to, and focus it entirely on this, because the brain is like, well, what's going on? What's going on? Mm. And so it actually strengthens the conditioning. Okay. So this is sometimes called operant conditioning. There are many variations and I could, I could flip into technical talk to, to create many shades of distinction, but I think I'm giving you a fair summary of how this stuff works. Um, the people who studied this had different opinions about uh, how it should be applied to human beings. Okay. Now at the dawn of computers, one of the founding computer scientists uh, was um, wrote a book called The Human Use of Human Beings. And this was a book pointing out that with the advent of computers, you could automate this whole thing instead of having white-coated lab researchers doing it. And there's a danger that people could make machines that would just make each other trained in a way that they'd become crazy and very narrow, and it could really be extremely dangerous for civilization. Uh, that was uh, a book in the 50s, mm -hmm. uh, sadly forgotten, Human Use of Human Beings. Uh, but then we hit the 60s and something really interesting happens. Um, it's famously known that a little, a little into the late 60s, the, the beginning of the technology of the internet happened uh, funded in the United States by military research that was trying to come up with mm. communications networks that could survive a, a nuclear attack by being very adaptable, right? But before that, there was a cruder technology for networking that was the first time computers were actually networked at distances for people to use. And this was an experimental uh, network that ran only between universities in the American Midwest. And guess who got the job of designing the user experience in it? None other than RBF Skinner. Mm -hmm. So the very first network 
experiment with real people was by a behaviorist. And his attitude, I think, was quite wrong, really wrongheaded. What he thought is that if you could get everybody onto computers that are networked and you could put everybody under the influence of these algorithms, you could engineer a society that would become stable and productive and happy and perfect. (laughs) 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 That's the right reaction. It's funny, right? It strikes us as a laugh line. It seems ridiculous, but um, there there are a couple of amazing things about it, which is that B.F. Skinner was on the Western capitalist side of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And yet what he was saying was not unlike what was happening on the other side. This is exactly what people in places like East Germany and North Korea and many other places have tried to do using other means to sort of put people under enough behavioral control and sensory control that you can engineer this perfect coherent society to your liking. And jumping ahead a little bit, Jaron, it's exactly like what China is doing now to its own citizens, as we know, right? Right. And unfortunately, I think China learned some tricks from our tech companies in this case, mm. something sure. that I find, I find shameful. Yeah. Mm. But anyway, sorry for interrupting you. Carry no, on. No, it's right. It's right. So look, anyway, um, so Skinner did this experiment. Didn't work particularly well. It was a tiny crude experiment, mostly forgotten, actually. Um, so then um, uh, the internet happens initially between military sites and universities, but this is the radical 60s. So there's this kind of hippie thing, which, hey, listen, I'm part of it. I'm a hippie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a California hippie, proud of it. But at any rate, there was this hippie sensibility that was anti-capitalism, not exactly pro-Soviet or pro the other side, but definitely in this other space and and and, and um somewhat naively utopian on many levels. Um, I say that as somebody who's tried to live in a 60s commune and whatnot. (laughs) It's hard. People are hard. You can't just pretend people are easy when people are hard. I mean, this Mm. is a fundamental issue that the left never gets, right? Uh, But anyway, um, the... uh, uh, so then when, when companies like Google show up, the rhetoric around computer culture, which is, inc- and computer culture is incredibly powerful. I mean, it's not, mm. this has never been an entirely top-down thing. This is a community cultural effort. And computer culture is is anti-capitalist on the surface, but as I say, also pro-capitalist, as long mm. as you're a hacker hero, hacker, hero, entrepreneur, you know. So it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't... Um, we were absolutely unwilling to take three seconds to step back and notice our own contradictions. Right. Mm. Um, it's, it's ridiculous, but, you know, very human, I think. Mm. And so, so Google was born with this ridiculous hippie illusion in front, mm. even though it's actually a company. And I have to say, um, uh, I'm putting it this way because I'm pretty sure that the original people who made Google would have been just as happy to do it differently, but the community pressure was so intense that they weren't really given a practical choice. It was like this very intense dogma. Um, Like as an example, um, I'll say some things here that might upset some, some people who are listening, but like in the early days, 20 years ago or whatever, a bit more than that, actually, like the seeming good guys who had nothing but very high self-regard, like the pirate parties in Europe, were feeding Google business while pretending to be anarchists and anti-capitalists. 
again, that was plainly true, obviously true to everybody. They were even funded by Google in many cases. And yet somehow everybody just ignored this. And I think it's an incredible testament to how people will be happily ready to lie to themselves if it's comfortable. And I I think that's universal. That's not just a problem of this particular community. It's a a Mm. universal human quality. Mm. And I think it sneaks up on us all the time. Hey, Constantine, do you want better mental health? I'm from Russia. We don't have mental health. So how do you deal with mental health? You drink vodka, then go out and wrestle bear. If you live, you feel better. If you die, you're not real man. What about the bear's feelings? It's Russian bear. It has no feelings. People don't always realize that physical symptoms like headaches, teeth grinding, and even digestive issues can be indicators of stress. And let's not forget about doom scrolling, not sleeping enough, sleeping too much, under eating and overeating. Sleeping too much, under eating, this is western disease. Therapy has really helped me in my life to concentrate and focus. It's really important to have someone impartial who you can talk to about the tricky issues that you're struggling to deal with. Therapy has played a really important role in helping me to deal with my ADHD and become better in all areas of my life. Why is he telling them how weak he is? Drink vodka, feel better. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Trigonometry funds get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash trigger, especially if they're not real men. That's B-E-T-T-E-R. H-E-L-P dot com slash trigger. We're talking about the worst of capitalism, but these companies in many ways are the worst of capitalism. They're monopolies. They're incredibly powerful. They now have the ability to influence elections like what we like we saw with Hunter Biden and Twitter suppressing the story. I mean, it's terrifying, isn't it? Well, a couple things to say there. One thing is I get calls from all kinds of people who are upset about what uh, what happened to elections. Uh, I have more firsthand knowledge than most people about what happened in the platforms. And there was more suppression of the left than the right. Both things happened. But just to be clear about that, mm-hmm. there was more stuff that happened that was anti-Biden than pro-Biden. It, like, it, like what? Tell us, because I'm I've never heard this argument. I'm very open to it. Like what? Give, can you give us some um, examples? Uh, the documented, for real, and high volume foreign interventions that favored a candidate favored Trump, mostly driven by Russia. Um, to say that that's all that happened would be ridiculous, because all kinds of things were happening. But the weight of it went in that direction. Does that mean anything? No, actually, it doesn't. I know that. Um, it's frequently, you, you kind of want to believe, like if you're more sympathetic to one side than the other side, mm-hmm. you kind of want to believe the other side's got more advantage or whatever. Honestly, this whole thing is a big, giant bundle of bullshit anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, I think to worry about whether the other side got more bullshit than your side is really irrelevant. The point is there should be no bullshit. Mm. No argument there at all. But Jan, can I just can I just challenge you briefly yeah. on, on this point? Or not challenge. You know, look, I know I've been through this argument a lot. I, I really want to emphasize 
I do believe I have a, a clear picture of it. On the other hand, I just really don't think it matters or it's that important. If it okay. strikes you as being important, I really want you, I want you to reconsider whether it is. Well, it is. that's why I want to ask you the question, because okay. I am totally open for you to persuade yeah. me it's unimportant. The difference that I saw, and look, neither Francis or I are Trump fans, neither of us is on the right, none of that, right? We're just, okay. as a principle, to me, watching a set of, coordinated efforts by different tech platforms to prevent a story about the son of a of a presidential candidate being published on the eve of the election that was unprecedented and very very different to uh the tech platform messing around with russian bot farms or whatever do you see what i'm saying yeah i look um i and you know what um i if you're going to so if the, if the question before us was, were there parties who work together to try to support Biden in ways that make us uncomfortable about the future of a decent, honest society and democracy? The answer is yes, there were. Mm -hmm. And I and so I can I would validate what you're saying. Um, okay. I think I think that happened in a few different levels. I think a part of it was. Um, the fact that most people of influence in the tech world are educated and most educated people are more sympathetic to the Democrats in the US and to mm. liberal positions in general. Um, and they naturally tend to support each other when they start to move in that direction. And even without an explicit conspiracy, there can be an effective one. All right. I, I, I don't want to deny that there's truth about that. Um, I also want to point out that some of what they were resisting, like if the question is, uh, well, they're different questions. You could say, was there less reporting than there might have otherwise been about Hunter Biden? Probably. On the other hand, a lot of the promotion of the Hunter Biden story was also equally questionable and for the same reasons. And with even more central or central coordination and more questionable issues and more money behind it, to the best of my ability to read it, which is neither here nor there. Um, in my view, in the balance, if you compare all the different kinds of bias that were injected into the social media systems, there was more pro-Trump stuff going on than pro-Biden stuff. Once again, neither here nor there. And it, it, it makes no sense for any of us to adjudicate that. If I'm wrong, it really wouldn't have any effect on any of the positions I'm taking of consequence here. Truly. truly. Okay, Jaron, that, that being the case, what do we do with these hugely powerful companies they, uh, you know, they can pretty much do what they want. Yeah, they can control well, what they want. They they disseminate information as they want. They're too powerful, surely. Yeah. So this is very problematic. So um, going back to the book I mentioned, the human use of human beings, and I didn't mention the author Norbert Wiener. I should mm. mention. And I have to say, this book is really hard to read because this guy's an ultra nerd, and there's mathematical equations in the middle of it, and. Um, it's a great shame. If he'd written it in an accessible style, I think it would have changed the world. But he, he just wasn't that person, you know, at the time. This is going way, way back. This is to the Manhattan Project generation of scientists, you know. So anyway, um, the problem is that if you have computer networks running the world, whoever runs the networks runs the world. It's like a much more powerful thing than money. It's a much more powerful thing than votes. It's, much, it's like the most powerful thing because you're directly in control of the channels of action that exist in the civilization. And 
This was a danger that was well articulated in advance by a variety of people. Um, I tried to say what I could about it at the time, as did a few others. Um, honestly, most of us in computer science were just so enthralled by the prospect of power that we allowed our, our kind of, um, I don't know, our egos to get the best of us. Oh, we must, this must be for the good. We're the best people. We'll save the world if we get powerful. I mean, it's, and, and of course that's fallacious. No, no, nobody's perfect, you know, and no concentration of power is trouble free, you know? Mm. And so um, that, that's uh, what happened. And so now we do have this kind of curious situation. Now that said, there's a weird kind of neutered quality to the new kind of power that makes it a little less horrible than it might be. And if you want to look at the comparison, compare what companies like Meta and Alphabet can do to what the Chinese are doing. Right. Or for mm. the, the Russians yeah. or the Iranians or these all kinds of other people. Like there's a weird thing about Silicon Valley culture, if I can call that, or tech or tech culture, in that it's so nerdy. It's so we're not supposed to use the term on the spectrum anymore, but I don't really know what language to use for this. There's this kind of dryness to it that in a way it's not exactly traditional power seeking and it doesn't have traditional power goals. It's more just this kind of nerd supremacy without a particular direction or sensibility. It's, it's, it's truly different, I think, than previous concentrations of power. I mean, like you go to Silicon Valley and every other center of power in history has made itself beautiful and impressive and Silicon Valley has not. It's just kind of another shitty suburb, you know, and that's strange, but it reflects this kind of incredible nerdiness. Uh, and so, um, if you talk to Zuckerberg, it's just this kind of very formulaic um, first order approximation of what an idea would be like the world should be more connected. So we'll make it more connected and that's to the good, but there's nothing more. There's no, there's nothing there. I mean, of course the individuals like getting rich, but they don't necessarily have anything to do with that. You know, um, same thing at Google. It's, it's kind of an odd thing. It's like, we will organize the world's information which I think, by the way, is a misnomer. Let's, but that we don't need to go into the philosophy of that. But the thing is, it it's a weirdly neutered thing, and so the main problem with it is different from the problem of, um, oh, I don't know, um, a Putin-like figure who wants to conquer a neighbor, or a Xi-like figure in China who wants to create this sort of Chinese-centric model of the world that that gives no room for, for even the identity of Tibetans or Uyghurs or Taiwanese or anything. It's not like either of those things. It's more, it's a weird thing. It's like the nerd kid in high school who doesn't even really have an agenda, but just is sick of being the one dumped on, you know? It's a strange inert kind of power to a degree, but because it has the side effect of destroying the personality, harming the personalities of everybody else, it still is, the effects are still too negative. And of course, the other thing to say is, whenever you create a center of power, it'll eventually be seized by the worst people. You start, right. off, you start off with Bolsheviks, then you get Stalinists. Yeah. That's how it works. And when you get rid of the Stalinists, you don't suddenly get Democrats, you get, uh, you, you, uh, uh, you get some kind, you get Putins, you know, like, mm -hmm. like uh, uh, centers of power are seductively horrible for history. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of reasons not to do it, but it's also important to understand that when we talk about power of tech companies, it's a different kind of power than we're used to historically.
In Jaren, it seems to me that, like all revolutions, it started off with utopians, people wanting to build a better future, people having an idealised view of the world and how they were going to change things for the better, and they were going to make everyone more connected and society was going to get richer and, and, and just better as a result without realising, A, the, long, the consequences of their actions, but B, as well, you've got to monetize this thing. And if you're going to monetize it, you want people to stay on the platforms. And how are you going to do that? It's You're going to do it through algorithms and playing with people's emotions. Yeah, just over over the last weekend, I uh, keynoted, or I co-keynoted with Neil Stevenson, who wrote Snow Crash and uh, many other science fiction novels, we, uh, the, uh, the big crypto conference, which is called Consensus, uh, put on by Coindesk in Austin, which is kind of like... Uh, we call it a dumpster fire in our current lingo, <laughs> but at any rate, whatever. The thing is, I thought, wow, I'm going to come in here. This is a hostile audience. You're not going to want want to hear me say how scammy this whole thing is and how mm. whatever. But I put it in a positive light. And what I said is, look, instead of trying to make money from finding the next person to come along who'll buy some token for more than you paid for it, why don't we get these things to form value chains where if you have a token for some piece of art and some pe- person uses that art and animation and then somebody else adds music to the animation and somebody else adds a story and somebody else does this and that, and then it eventually makes money because people are willing to pay for it. Then if royalties go back to everybody, then instead of selling the token, you could earn royalties and dividends on it and fund a society. Because um, one of the fundamental problems with tech culture and money in general is that it has forgotten what money is for. If you go back to Adam Smith or anybody who's been concerned with how money works, the idea is that when you have money, that money goes to work for society. That's how you earn interest on it. And the money goes up in value. Mm. The worst thing is to stuff your money in a mattress and pull it out of circulation. Right. And yet the tech industry has sort of been like putting money in a mattress. And that's even more so with the web three and crypto stuff. And so what's funny is when I said this, I thought they were going to be angry, but I had this whole hall of people who started applauding and then they stood up. And it's like, I think everybody knows in their gut that the way we've been doing things is silly and we need to be more focused on real productivity, real investment, real accomplishment, real achievement, real building, real innovation, and just moving bits around and screwing around with other people's behaviors doesn't actually do anything for the future. And everybody really is in it for the future at the end of the day. That's why people get into tech. So I, it might just evaporate. Maybe I'm kidding myself, but I have this feeling like there's this, inc- and these, this is a very young audience. So these are new people and not, not the same old people I've been talking to for decades. And I just have this kind of optimistic feeling that they're open to it and that there's room for tech culture to improve. I really believe that. Mm. Yeah, well, I know what you mean, Jared, because I think, as we, I said to you right at the beginning when we started, I think while many of us are grateful for the tremendous opportunities that being connected with 8 billion other people uh, has, have given us, at the same time, we cannot ignore some of the terrible downsides, whether they are for society or for our children or for mm-hmm. our own well-being or any of those things. So, And I think a lot of people are starting to, to wake up to that. And the other thing that I resonated with me so strongly is when you were talking about, you know, these are nerds who've, who, who've got their own sort of not quite as evil agenda as it might be. But I was thinking the whole time you were talking, yeah, but that's because they own the thing that they created. What happens when they all get forced out or they die or whatever? Who's going to come in 
and replace them. Yeah, so- yeah. I, I think about that all the time. Like, who's gonna, who exactly is going to inherit Facebook or Meta? Right. You know, it's right. not set up to allow anything. I mean, now Cheryl just left, and instead of a new Cheryl, it's just even more concentrated. And that is not the way to create an institution for the benefit of humankind. You have to see beyond yourself, and it's, it just hasn't happened yet. So, so let me ask you about that, Jaron, because you talked about how this could all have been done differently and you spoke about it at the time and the business model is wrong. How do we fix social media or how do we make it better? How do we make it slightly less worse, at least? <laughs> yeah, slightly <laughs> less worse. That, I'll, I'll live with that. Um, I think it's a really huge problem to say, oh, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make everything better and everything's going to be perfect because that you, whenever somebody says that, you know, this is going to be really crappy. It's, if, if it's like, I can make this slightly less horrible, you know, that's the person you want to listen to. Right. So um, I think there's a few things that can be done differently. Um, one of them, if anybody wants to, the current uh, issue of the Atlantic magazine in the U.S. has a peace of mind on how to fix Twitter um, that I wrote for Mr. Elon. And uh perhaps to no effect whatsoever, we shall see. But what it proposes is um, is an idea that I think is the least invasive and least impinging on free speech way of just improving the conversation. And that is to demand that people form small associations, like form little zines or bands or clubs or mm. brands, small enough that they can all know each other and only publish through those and um, rise or fall in terms of reputation and monetary income together in, in that band, like you two are doing with your, your uh, production here, right? Mm. Now, here's the reason why I'm saying that. Um, if you look at all the people who've studied societies that you'd want to live in, they've all come to the conclusion that that mechanism, which is often called a societal institution, is at the core of maintaining quality. All right. Uh, some of the people who talked about that are de Tocqueville, uh, Hannah Arendt. But, you know, the one that really got me going on it some time ago was a friend of mine named uh, Mohammed Yunus, who won a Nobel for starting microlending. And there's a lot of ways that microlending has perhaps not achieved all that some hoped it would achieve. But let's leave that aside. There's one part of it that's worked really well, which is um, he had a bank in Bangladesh trying to serve a super poor community where nobody had a credit rating. If they gave somebody a loan, chances are the person would not pay it back. Cause like, why would they? It was just free money. They weren't even used to the whole thing. And they said, okay, we're not going to do loans to individuals anymore. You guys have to form a group. You have to vouch for each other. If one of you doesn't repay, you all are going to pay the price <laughs> for it. And this is a way that we can distribute the process of credit, creating credit, or if you like creating quality, and it worked. They suddenly got better repayment rates than traditional banks are used to. Incredible. So when people have a bit of a shared stake, they start to watch out for each other. And if somebody runs into legitimate trouble, other people help them. If somebody wants to screw around, they get rejected. They get ejected from the group. And suddenly you have quality going up. Magic, right? And uh, so I would like to see that in social media. And it would be strictly by free association. If you don't like your group, you can always quit. You can get into another one. A group can decide who to accept, who to reject, but the point is that the groups are small enough that the people really know each other. And then what you get out of that is a few things. One, if somebody starts turning into a jerk and everybody turns into a jerk online from time to time, mm-hmm. because we turn into a jerk from time to time offline, I mean, let's you know be honest about ourselves. 
the other people say, hey, you know what, <laughs> cool it, this is like a bit much. But another great thing is the group can post often enough to keep the brand going and to keep subscribers, whereas individuals have to post too often to do so and to stay sane. So that's mm-hmm. a good thing. Another really good thing is that since the group is divvying up benefits, and I, I want them to get subscriptions, donations, micropayments, I, I'm really into money for this. I think, mm-hmm. I think there should be more money online. I really do. Because we live in a market world. And to say, well, the online world won't be a market world just makes people become gradually more and more obsolete as technology gets better. It's like, too, it's ridiculous. Like, if we're going to be socialists, we have to do it everywhere. We can't just do it online. <laughs> so I'm like really pro-capitalism online because I think it's the most viable way to make things workable. But anyway, um, if if there's a bot, if there's a fake person in your group and that bot is getting some of the money, you have suddenly a motivation to get rid of the bot, mm-hmm. right? And now, you know, when Elon Musk is saying, oh, there's too many bots on Twitter, he's absolutely right. Uh, a friend of mine at Facebook tells me that 99% of the new account applications are from bots by their estimate. And the reason wow. why, is that people who want to mess up a society put in bots in order to sway opinion, right? So there's every economic incentive to make bots. Well, now there'll be an economic incentive to get rid of bots, these groups. And otherwise, it's the platform's job to do it from on top, which is a losing game. But if it's distributed, just like creating credit and micro-lending, all of a sudden it becomes doable. We can get rid of the, the bots, which are terrible. They're poisonous. Um, there are many other benefits. You can read the piece in The Atlantic if you want. Um, so another thing I'll point out is that I've tried to do a ranking of the relative degree of terribleness in different online platforms. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how often are people jerks? And there's nothing's perfect. But the thing is, it's human beings, so nothing's ever going to be perfect, right? But there are differences, okay? So um, some of the places are really a cesspool. Uh, Facebook is junk, horrible. Um, YouTube is really pretty bad. You can manage your experience on it to make it better, but it's really pretty awful. Um, There's an experiment. Now, some people challenge me and say, no, this isn't true, but I've done this many times. And in my experience, having done it dozens of times, which is not a huge sample, so not up to scientific standards, but... If I get a room full of kids and I say, okay, just either start with your account or start with an un- with a fresh identity where Google doesn't know who you are and just let YouTube recommend follow-up uh, videos, how many tops does it take until you end up in some really weird, creepy, paranoid, ugly thing? And I usually found it to be in the teens, like in the late teens of times, sometimes sooner, sometimes later. But that's horrible. That's horrible. So YouTube, YouTube's garbage. YouTube's accessible despite many, many wonderful, valuable things on it. Um, what's something that's better? Um, I might be biased because I work with Microsoft, but GitHub, this uh, place for sharing uh, projects, is pretty good. There's an occasional jerk on GitHub, but mostly people have a stake and they have a shared stake with people in their teams. So it's a little bit like the thing I'm talking about for social media, mm. where you know if you're working with a bunch of people on a coding project, the last thing you're going to go and do is mess up the value for everybody by mouthing off at somebody for no reason. Like all of a sudden you feel a bit of a sense of, of uh, responsibility to your mates, your compatriots, mm-hmm. right? That's a good thing. So, um, and I believe in monetization because I, I believe when people have a stake, when they have something to lose, 
they'll think through their actions more. If the only thing you the only thing you have to gain is attention and you have nothing to lose, then you'll be a jerk because you you get mm. the incentive, right? It's really simple. So I want to monetize this stuff. And then people say, oh, but I don't want to have to pay. But the thing is, if you're earning, paying won't feel so bad. Like if somebody is gainfully employed, it doesn't bother them to pay for stuff that keeps other people gainfully employed so they can afford to buy whatever they do. Like if people are part of the cycle of the economy and are part of a social contract that makes sense, they're more ready to pay for stuff. And we already know online that people pay for stuff sometimes. It's possible. It doesn't have to be all the time. It doesn't have to be like this religious thing that you, you never have an exception to, but just, we just need a lot more of it. And Jaron, you're talking about, you know, social media platforms and you mentioned Facebook and I agree with you and YouTube as well. To me, the worst one is Instagram. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the worst one. And as somebody who used to, okay. I, I used to teach for many years. Go for it, go for it. Tell me. It's the ideal platform for me to do my bikini modeling. So <laughs> I don't know what you're telling me, but yeah, no, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. I get it. <laughs> but no, but just but, but the effect that it has on particularly on children and young girls in particular is awful. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then I was reading, oh, they didn't do it, thank the Lord, but then they were talking about Instagram for kids. I know. Oh, and, and like, you can just imagine the meeting where that came up and somebody saying, how can we expand? How can we expand? Well, there's this population of kids, you know. And, <laughs> you know, it's just like, it, it's incredible that that conversation could even have happened. Yeah, I know. Jaron, uh, let me. Uh, were you gonna? No, no, because up, uh, no, no. I was gonna follow up because to me, the the thing that is awful about Instagram, it's the obsession with the physical self, and the the constantly looking at other people's lives and other people's bodies and what that breeds in young people, particularly mm-hmm. in women. And you know, and I walk around London now, and there's so many people having plastic surgery, and look, there's, I haven't. There's no studies in this, but I go. This must be something to do with what people are seeing constantly online, constantly on Instagram. Right. Well, look, a couple things to say there. Um, One thing I've learned through hard experience is that if a causation connection seems right, it doesn't necessarily mean it is right. So to say that the plastic surgery thing tracks Instagram, it sounds right to me, but I'm trying to keep us to somewhat high standards of scientific study, even though it's hard with this because it happens so fast and the only people with the data are the creepy people doing it. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's difficult, but I wouldn't, I would just put that in the category of kind of makes sense, but not confirmed. Mm -hmm. That's my advice to you. Like, like we we should do our best to try to, because we can make all the arguments we need to and chart a future path without convicting every little possible wrong along mm. the way, because it, it won't even happen. Nothing will happen anyway. So uh, that's one thing I'll say. The next thing I'll say is um, uh, the pumping up vanity has been happening happening for as long as uh, women can spend money on anything or men <laughs> for that matter, just people. Like in, there's a sense in which it's ancient, and and yet there's a sense in which it's more immediate, more programmed, and more um, kind of nasty now than I think it was before. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, it's it's easy in this stuff to get caught up with this argument. Well, it's always been that way, which is kind of true to a degree. But then the question of the amount and kind is also important. And there is a difference now. And sometimes it can be a little bit hard to be articulate about what the difference is, but it's it's definitely there. And I think it has to do with operant conditioning, with this use of behavior modification as technique. Well, right. I was going to say human beings are the way they've always been, but the tools are much more powerful. And I think that's that's yeah. where we are, which is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because you talked somewhat almost romantically and wistfully about the early days of, of the Internet. And I remember that time, uh, freedom, connection, every, anything you, you, is possible. What are you talking about? Say again? You weren't born yet. What are you talking about? Well, maybe not in those days, but I certainly remember <laughs> like first encountering the mass phase of the internet, yeah. right? When the ordinary user was sure, using sure. it, right? Uh, and I was I used to play a lot of computer games in the time, and I'd have friends all over the world that I would speak with. We'd build connections. We'd play games together, mm-hmm. and we'd, we'd make the most outrageous jokes to each other, and it was free, and it was kind of edgy, and it was like the wild, wild west. And that was fun and that was cool. And now we are in a very different place where rather than talking about how much freedom we all have, it's much more about how do we prevent quote unquote harm. And and we've talked about some of the harms that come with social media and the internet, but also there's a lot of this, like, you can't say this, you can't say that amplifying this message causes this and that. Mm -hmm. Do you think the internet will ever be free again, even in the way that it was? This is why I'm proposing this group structure I just talked about, because On the one hand, if we just say, well, we have to lay off because all this, all of this telling people what to say is leading in no good direction, well, then the whole world turns to pot because we let manipulative, creepy people have the most power. But then on the other hand, if we let things just, if we get to control to the point where we control those people, we also control too much. And if you want to see what that looks like, look at China. We actually can see what that looks like, and it's not good. And I think I think China has become a little crazy, for instance, in its management of COVID because of the inability for people to just communicate in a straightforward way. Mm-hmm. I think I think they've really hurt themselves. Uh, and so um, neither of those paths are good. This group thing I'm talking about, I don't know if it'll work because it hasn't been tested enough. So maybe it also is hopeless. But at least right now, it's it's an idea that's still standing that gives us an alternative to shutting people down or just letting society fall away to the worst people. It gives us a path through that dilemma, at least mm. it appears to, you know, so far, or maybe some variation of it will, will. But I mean, it's at least a direction because I really don't like either of the alternatives right now. Right yeah. now, if we don't go into the direction of the groups I was talking about, we either have more and more censorious behavior online, or we have more and more power for the most creepy people, or we have to just shut down the net. All three of those are horrible. So this is another option. It's another direction. Maybe, maybe. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Because if you do, then EasyDNS is a company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, de-platform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows about that. So will you in a second. <laughs> Easy DNS have rock solid network infrastructure and fantastic customer support. They're in your corner no matter what the world throws at you, unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. <laughs> you know about that. <laughs> Move your domains and websites over to Easy DNS right now 
all you've got to do is go to easydns.com forward slash triggered. That's easydns.com forward slash triggered. Use our promo code, which is also triggered, and get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, which tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. It's interesting you mentioned that, Jaron, because we use a platform called Locals, uh, which is a bit like Patreon, but there's a community community element to it. So it's not just money for access to extra content. It's a community of people who love our show. And, you know, there's about 15,000 members in total. There's about a 1,000 super active users who contribute or maybe 1,200, something like that. And we, at this level at least, we don't have to do any moderation. People aren't, generally speaking, having bitch fights with each other every three minutes. Mm. People are generally respectful. There's a sense of like everybody's pulling in the same direction. And one or two times when people have got out of line, it's me or Francis have gone, guys, remember, this is like a, a cool space in which, in which we all hang out and have a good time. And everyone's gone, oh, yeah, that's cool. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and people come and go. But I think your idea sort of works. But I suppose the question for me is, in an internet that connects everyone to everyone, how 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 do you do that? Right. Well, all the platforms were cute when they were small. Yeah. Like yeah. Earliest days of TikTok weren't toxic. TikTok is currently toxic. Right. The very earliest days of Instagram were actually cute, as hard as as hard as it is to remember now. Hmm. Uh, so smallness works. The question is, how can you make a network of small things that maintain the good qualities of smallness while still scaling to the world. So that's Boom. the idea I've presented to you as an attempt to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a project. It's a civilizational level project. I can't tell you that I know exactly how to do it. I just believe that through process of elimination, it's the last idea standing I know about. And I don't see anything that kills it offhand unless you just want to be cynical and say, ah, oh, it's all going to be shit, which is, you know, it might be. <laughs> it might be, but um, maybe maybe this is a path forward. Um, I think there has to be a small enough immediate community that it's possible for people to really talk to each other and for not to become lost in this giant ocean of bots and unknowability. That's absolutely essential. But um, there has to be, there's another side of it I haven't talked about. Right now, uh, people, the way people perceive the world is social. This is something we often don't realize about each other. Um, There's an experiment I sometimes do with my students where if you go out on a crowded sidewalk and you just start pointing at something, everybody will start looking there, even if there's nothing there. And the reason why is that we evolved to rely on each other for cues about danger Mm. and where to focus attention. Mm. This is something that's deep in us. Okay, so if you have this giant unknowable crowd, whatever that thing, that giant crowd indicates, you will start to feel. So if there's enough bots in it to try to indicate indicate that your society is shit or that the other society is shit or whatever it is, you'll start Mm. to feel that. Um, Now, if you can turn it into a collection of groups, as I've I've been talking about, maybe you can cut back the total number of players by a hundred times or something like that, Mm -hmm. maybe even a thousand times. Now, your interface to that world, instead of looking like this feed from a zillion people, will look like a newsstand with covers that you've started to like. And you can add or remove from your newsstand and start to dive into it, each of which representing a group. And in that circumstance, the way you receive information is 
given context and packaged. So there were horrible Nazis and whatever, uh, whatever kind of creepy person, jihadists, whatever. These people have existed before. But the thing is, they always sort of label themselves like we're in this magazine or we're in this whatever. When they're just part of the feed, it just makes the whole world feel horrible. Mm. Which is part of what leads to this rising paranoia for everyone. If everything is once again compartmentalized, where there's at least some context, context hasn't been destroyed, then if you see some horrible message, you say, oh, yeah, those are the Nazis, whatever, fuck those people. So it gives you that ability to not have it be part of your social queuing. It's an extremely important issue I hadn't talked about before. Mm. So we have to think about realistically how people work cognitively and how to just build a technology that works with us as we are instead of as how we imagine ourselves. Jaron, your idea is brilliant. The one area of pushback uh, that I would say is, aren't we therefore just creating more echo chambers by doing this? Um, Yeah, I mean, look, what'll happen, this is why I want it to be monetized. If you have a bunch of people just saying, oh, yeah, you're great, and those other people are shit, and then you have a whole bunch of those, how many people are going to subscribe to that? Well, a certain amount. It might even be a fairly large amount, but it won't be most people. Like, you know, like what will happen at a certain point when you get to the point where you have bands and brands and stuff, there's a bit of a filter that happens where if it's just self-indulgent, echo chambery stuff, it'll start to fall. You know, this is, um, there's an amazing thing that happens. Like, for instance, if you look at the history of music, you might say, well, the music business is filled with producers doing calculated artificial stuff and crappy artists who got in through nepotism Mm -hmm. and blah, 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 blah. And all of that is true. And yet, if you look at the things that were hits and the things that persist and the things that lasted over the years, at least in my opinion, there was kind of a sieve in which quality stuff rose. You know, overall, with some exceptions, and we can disagree about individual cases, but overall it happens. And I think it would start to happen online, too. That makes a lot of sense. One of the reasons I think the people that like our show like our show is they know we're not right or left. We're just trying to find the answers in a, in a complicated world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got our own biases, which we're upfront about, but we're not pushing an agenda because I do think that gets very boring. And we've seen other people go through a process where they just end up in one Thing and they're not curious anymore. And I think that's very off-putting. I know what you mean. Um, uh, look, we've done a lot on social media. I don't, I, and I, uh, we could talk for hours more, of course. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Talk to us about AI. You mentioned you were extremely skeptical uh, and about VR as well. Just give us your, you know, a Cliff Notes version of your thoughts on, on Oh, yeah, sure. Versions. Well, look, on AI, um, just to be clear, the actual algorithms I'm a total enthusiast of and I've worked on and contributed to um, to my knowledge, my little group, a little startup was the first to do deep, deep fakes as we know them and also the first to do snap filter kinds of things because I think these types of algorithms have their uses and can, you know, and they're scientifically interesting. The thing that bothers me though, and I think that tends to create a cover for the worst uses of these things that make them, that can make them feel anti-human and indeed be anti-human is this ideology that we're building a life form in the box. Now, Within and even the term artificial intelligence suggests an intelligence, you know, it suggests that there's some entity, some creature, some, you know, something alive in there. And um, I really don't like that way of thinking. I want to think of them as tools, not as creatures. Now, as it happens, the single person who did the most to promote the creature way of thinking about computers was named Marvin Minsky. 
And he was one of probably my most important mentor when I was young. And I used to argue about argue with him about this. This we're going back to like late 70s, early 80s, something like that. And I'd say, you know, this is bullshit, Marvin. Like these things aren't alive. Like, look at this thing. And I know, God, I hate to say this. Marvin wouldn't want me to say this, but he would say, look, this lab is funded because the military believes that if we don't build these creatures that our enemies will, so just play along and then you get a salary. <laughs> you know, it's like a marketing <laughs> thing. And so I say, okay, okay, you know, and I did it. And um, I think it still is sort of a marketing thing, but it's become sort of a religious thing. It's like we, the nerdy guys, get to create life. Screw those women, like, or don't yes. in our case, don't screw them or whatever. Um, <laughs> like we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make these life. And and um, the thing is, everything gets clear. Totally, there's no absolute truth on this because nobody can really know what else is conscious or what else we we like. We don't really have. Is evolution itself as a process conscious? Is it intelligent? You can debate that. I think you can see it either way. The terms have a lot of potential wiggle room and definition and whatever. I mean, it's interesting, but you can't ever come to a conclusion because there's no way to define your terms. And we don't have, if if I can get slightly sophisticated my language use, we have no empirical channel to gather evidence to help the argument along one way or the other anyway. So... It's not resolvable, but we can ask pragmatically which way of thinking makes us more competent. I think that's a reasonable question. Mm -hmm. And thinking of them as tools instead of creatures makes us more competent because then we can evaluate them as tools. If we think they're a creature, then we're giving them too much deference. We never make them better in the ways we need to. So like if you, that's why I really don't like it when people say, oh, I'm going to have this program that'll make music art for you and it'll be better than a person. And the reason why is that then you'll change to make it seem better. Um, the, way I used to, the way I used to put it is you'll make your, <laughs> do you know what the Turing test is? It was this idea from Alan Turing who started computer science. And um, it's ironic because if you know anything about the story, he wrote this just before he committed suicide. Mm. because, mm. Uh, And it's a, it's a long, amazing story. But at any rate, if you take it at face value, what it says is if you can't tell whether a program is a person or not, you might as well call it a person. Otherwise, you're prejudiced. Now, of course, he was he was being essentially tortured for being gay and treated as a non-person. So there's a whole level to this thing that we could talk about. But let's leave that aside for a second. Um, the, the thing is, if it's if it's true that somebody cannot tell if the machine is acting like a person or not, maybe they're behind the, you know, they're just texting with you. Um, then it's one possibility is the machine elevated itself and became a person. The other possibility is that the human lowered themselves and became an idiot to believe the machine's a person. <laughs> the, the test doesn't allow us to distinguish between the two. This happened just last week where an engineer was fired from Google. Mm-hmm. Who their program had become alive, but it's also possible that that guy became an idiot. <laughs> There's no empirical or scientific distinction between these two things. We can't tell which is which. Anyway, um, people demonstrably are willing to make themselves idiots to socialize. We do it all the time. We all become morons or to try to impress a date. We all become morons to try to impress a potential employer. We all become morons all the time with each other in the hopes it'll do some good. And every once in a while, maybe it does. It usually doesn't. But we do exactly the same with machines that we think are people. So let's not think they're people. Let's call them tools. If whatever it is isn't working, let's say that tool needs to be better designed. 
Let's not say, oh, you know, uh, I guess that's just the way it is. It's a creature. No, 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 no. And I think this, so this issue of treating them as, as, as tools instead of people is actually one of the core problems that got us into the trouble we're in. Because Google always conceived of itself as an AI company. Mm-hmm. And they always thought, well, if it's not doing what we want, the thing is it's an emerging AI and we have to give it the space. It's like a child. You let it grow and go through its tantrums or whatever. Um, and that attitude is absolutely wrongheaded. They're tools. Mm-hmm. If they're not doing what we want, we change them. And Jaron, on that, speaking of pragmatic questions to ask in this sort of conversation, uh, you know these tools from the inside out. We don't. Is it not the case that the algorithms that, say, determine our ability to search for things on Google, they're so complex now that actually it's not within the, the realms of possibility for a single human being to assess that algorithm in its entirety? Right. So this is a... Uh, this is a large topic to talk about, and I am um, I'm not here representing them at all. But I'm I'm uh, the so-called prime scientist at Microsoft, and our office is funding and helping guide the OpenAI algorithms like GPT and Dolly and Codex that some some of your uh, uh, viewers might be familiar with. And so this question of can we understand what these things even do? Um, in my opinion. Part of the issue is that the culture, tech culture wants them to be creatures instead of tools and kind of set them up to be hard to understand more than was really needed. Now, that's going to be a controversial statement, and I'll get a lot of pushback from people in the field. And yet, I think it's true. Like, for instance, one of the problems we have, do you know what Dolly is? No. No. Oh, you should look it up. It's D-A-L-L-E. It's the latest um, image generation stuff. So you just mm. give it some text and you say, hey, I would like I would like to have an image of a robotic pumpkin uh, swimming the English Channel in the style of Turner. And you know what? It'll synthesize that. It'll come out. And the way it does it is through this process of sort of randomly starting to create images and compare comparing them with images that have matching keywords nearby mm-hmm. and going back and forth until it gets something that it reads as a match. And typically what comes out actually looks like the thing you asked for. It's just mm-hmm. astonishing, actually. Now, yes. what's wrong with that? Well, there's a few interesting things about it. Um, one thing is if you just give it nothing but the one word Asian, nothing will come out but porn, because all it does is it reflects the primary keywords that were online. And I don't think most the billions of people from Asia really want that result. (laughs) I don't think think that's great. (laughs) If you, so there's something wrong with the way we're doing it. And so then what we end up doing is it's a little bit like the problem of trying to censor online speech to fix online speech. It's like this game that you can never win. So now what you do is you create this whole organization that's trying to go through the output of these giant models and try to have them not give terrible results. But you know, it's a never-ending, it's a never-ending struggle. And it's not clear that you ever even get to the point where it's okay, you know, it's just rough. And at what point is this kind of safe for the world, you know? Um, so it's a, that's a tough one. Uh, Jaren, can they- I tell you what troubles me about your answer very quickly? Right. Uh-huh. I asked you whether these algorithms are too complicated for a single human being to understand. And you're a very smart guy, and you gave me an answer that's too complicated for me to understand. Oh, I'm but, sorry. Um, no, no, but what I'm saying is what troubles me about that is uh-huh. if it was the case that a single being could understand him, I imagine you would have said yes, but you didn't. 
I, let me give, give me a chance to finish. Okay. What I was saying is right now they can't be understood, but I think they could be, we could do things differently so that they could be understood and mm-hmm. actually function better. That's, that's the big picture I'm trying to get across. Okay. So let's suppose instead of saying we'll just randomly take whatever people upload into the internet and then use that as the basis for these types of algorithms. Um, what if instead we said, you know what, we're going to put out a bounty. We need better input data that reflects what Asia is. And then what some of these clubs I was talking about, we sometimes call them mids, but whatever. There's like these data trusts, these clubs of people, like the ones who would publish. Um, they would start saying, okay, we're, we've just assembled 100,000 images of Asia. And then the, the people running the algorithm would say, wow, we just tested that. That improves our performance. We're not just getting porn anymore. You know what? We'll pay you this much. And then they say, well, you know, we're going to collectively bargain with you. We think we deserve that much. And then they, they, they go back and mm-hmm. forth. And what they get is a fair market price. So what you're doing is you're using the market to fix it. Mm-hmm. And now people understand what's going on. And the the reason you know they understood it is they got paid, right? If they didn't understand it, they wouldn't get paid. And so basically you, you, get, you end up in the same situation that you have in capitalism where understanding is reflected in payment because the, if you're not, you only get paid if you're generating enough value for the person to be able to pay it or being willing to pay it. So the successful negotiation is your validation of understanding, whereas otherwise, what the hell would it be? So what you do is instead of saying, oh, no, how can we fix this horrible thing we've made? You say, um, how do we motivate people to make a wonderful thing? Mm-hmm. All right. That's the answer to say, oh, I'm going to have these eggheads, people like me who are going to understand it is ridiculous because you shouldn't even trust us. Like, suppose we could understand it. Do you want to trust me? to under- No, of course not. That's not how civilization should work. Do I want to trust a marketplace made of groups of people who are earning their way to improving the performance of these things? Yes, I like that. And then what I like also is that then every time there's some new algorithm or some new robot, instead of the people saying, oh, no, this thing's going to put me out of work. I thought I was going to make a living as an artist, but now this thing's going to make the art. What will I do? I'll just be living in the street. Instead, they say, oh, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to join one of these groups and we're going to improve that thing because right now it's garbage and we're going to make it better. We're going to get paid for it. So it takes, it inverts the whole thing and turns what we call AI into this endless, infinite set of new opportunities instead of this thing that makes people feel obsolete. And that's what I call understanding. Well, that is a beautiful message to end on. How realistic that is, we are going to find out. Jaron Lanier, it's been an absolute pleasure. We're going to ask you a couple of questions from our supporters for our supporters. But before we do, in, in that local group that I told you about, right? The small group, people working together. Uh, but before we do, we've got one final question for you, which is always the same. What's the one thing we're, t- we're not talking about that we really should be? Oh, that's interesting. Does AI fulfill the same emotional needs as your ridiculous royal family for people? You're going to have to expand on that a little <laughs> bit. Well, as an American, I always look at like, what is this royal family? Why is it there? Why is what is all this fascination? It's our class system, Darren. Well, no, but the thing is, it's this. See, I think AI sort of is too. It's like it's this. It's this set of principles that come from very powerful people that are supposed to run society. Um, you know, I'm starting to feel like this whole gambit is falling flat. Never mind. My answer. Is- <laughs> <laughs> Forget it. Forget it. <laughs> All right. Darren, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> if people want 
if people want to find your work uh, online, uh, where's the best place to do that? Where is the best place to, to engage in this okay. wonderful mind the, of yours? The last, the last book I wrote was, um, wait, which one? I'm not sure if I remember the order. The last two were called Dawn of the New Everything, which is a memoir of the early days of, of uh, virtual reality in the 80s. Um, and the uh, social media book I wrote was called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. In the UK and UK adjacent countries around the world, it's published by Bodley Head, which is a fun a fun publisher you have. And uh, um, I think on the, the VR memoir, the head is wearing a headset. Um, it's an actual, it's a head. Anyway, um, and then there's two more books coming out, but I'll, I'll leave you, I'll leave you. What? Leave us in suspense yeah, about those. Well, look, uh, if, if, if you did give us your time once again, when the books come out to chat about what you're talking about and then we'd be very grateful. Uh, don't go anywhere because we're going to ask you a couple of questions for our locals. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or all show, all of which go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. Do you see a connection between the emergent use of social media and virtual reality? And on the other hand, the growth of the feeling that we sort of all get to choose our own identity. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.